This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston. We've taken a summer hiatus, but we're back in full swing now, and we've got some great podcasts coming up, including Professor Adam Miller, author of a very insightful book of Mormon philosophy titled Letters to a Young Mormon. Now that'll be in September, and then in October we'll have Professor Craig Harleen, who's just published mission memoir titled Way Below the Angels, is just a terrific read. On today's podcast, we're pleased to feature Texas A&M professor Valerie Hudson, whose remarkable book, Sex and World Peace, published by Columbia University Press, has received international acclaim and is changing the way we think about the relationship between gender treatment and political unrest. For many, this will be truly an eye-opener, and I hope you'll tell your friends about it. Also, if you enjoy our podcasts and haven't already done so, please go online to dialoguejournal.com and subscribe to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And we hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation. Every bit helps. This presentation was originally delivered to the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California on May 16, 2014. Now I'd just like to say a few words of introduction about our speaker tonight, Valerie Hudson. Valerie's a professor and the George H.W. Bush Chair at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. She's written a number of books, including Bear Branches, The Security Implications of Asia's Surplus Male Population, and that has won several awards, uh, American Association of Publishers Award for Best Book in Political Science, and the Otis Dudley Duncan Award for Best Book in Social Demography. So these are books that are highly regarded, not just in the Mormon community, but in the, in the field that she researches and teaches in. She was named one of Foreign Policy's Top 100 Global Thinkers of 2009. And tonight she'll be talking about how gender treatment affects political stability. Her book on that subject, titled Sex and World Peace, has been extremely well received. As one reviewer said, an eye-opening contribution to our understanding of the powerful misogynist forces that still contribute to violence and war. This volume should be required reading for all students of international relations and those who make policy. Before coming to Texas A&M, Dr. Hudson was professor of political science at BYU for 24 years and served as the associate director of the Kennedy Center. She joined the church in 1971, receiving her bachelor's degree from BYU, master's from Ohio State, and she's married, and her husband, David Kassler, is here with her. He is a landscape architect and artist, and does some beautiful work. He's got a site online that you go to visit sometime. They're the parents of eight children. So without further ado, Dr. Hudson. I'm delighted to be here with you tonight. We were... Um Enjoying the scenery, Hazyville it is, as we flew in uh, to the airport today. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been in Southern California. It's been a long time. And uh, so it was delightful to get Morse's invitation to come. Uh, and um, I thank all of you for coming. I appreciate 
your willingness to make the effort, in, in Thomas's case, quite a bit of effort to be here. And I hope what I have to say tonight will be of some use to you. So what I'd like to talk about is the most recent book that I've published. It's called Sex of World Peace. We were originally going to call it Sex and War, but then we discovered that title had already been taken by two male authors. So we thought, well, I guess the women, you know, the men, men have taken Sex and War, we'll take Sex and Peace. And then somebody said, well, it sounds like some sort of massage manual, so we went with Sex and World Peace instead. <laughs> Uh, and then next year, coming out, will be uh, another book, also from Columbia University Press, and that's called The Hillary Doctrine, which is going to look at Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State. And so that probably should be a timely book, assuming that she, she runs for president, so that would be fun. So I'm talking to you tonight in um, my guise as a political scientist, so let me just start out by saying that one of the key questions that security studies investigates is what are the sources of conflict and instability within and between states. And in my field of study, security studies, we talk a lot about some pretty conventional theories. So we look at ethno-nationalism and we look at the clash of civilizations. We also look at how um, perhaps it is a lack of democracy worldwide um, that has led to this kind of sort of pathological conflict that we see in the world today. Others have suggested that poverty and resource scarcity drives conflict. Um, ideological conflict, of course, characterized a lot of the wars that we saw in the 20th century. And of course, um, realist theory would suggest to us that when there's an imbalance of power in the system or a power vacuum in the system, then all sorts of mischief can occur. So uh, my co-authors and I, and um, I'd like to just uh, tell you that two of my co-authors, Bonnie Ball of Spanville and Chad Emmett, are professors at BYU. Um, Ball of Spanville is now emerita. And uh, our other co-author, Mary Caprioli, is from the University of Minnesota. And so when I say we, I'm referring to all of us collectively. So we asked the question, well, what about the situation in security of women? Right? Does that... Uh, you know, yield any explanatory power. And, you know, at first blush, security studies is a heavily male-dominated field, right? I think what you see there is, is pretty much a world in which you would never know that there were women on the planet Earth. That's how bad it is in terms of being a womanless world. And so, first blush, the realms of international relations and the treatment of women may seem to be on separate planets. And yet the policy-making community, um, ever since UN Security Council Resolution 1325 in the year 2000, which put forth that women um, deserve a place at the negotiating table when wars and conflicts are, are ending, I think we've seen more and more that policymakers, especially those who have served in the field, kind of do see a linkage. So here's just uh, one quote from Kofi Annan, who um, was UN Secretary General when he stated it. He said, this, the world is starting to grasp that there is no policy more effective in promoting development, health, and education than the empowerment of women and girls. And I think we've known that from like the 70s, the 80s, and certainly the 90s. But then he went further and he said, I would venture no policy is more important in preventing conflict or in achieving reconciliation after a conflict has ended. And that's new, 
right? The notion that what was happening with women had anything to do um, with war and peace um, is kind of a, a 21st century thought. When I first suggested to my colleagues in the Department of Political Science at BYU that this is what I was going to study, we had these weekly group meetings where we talked about our research, and I was met with skepticism, we'll put it, put it mildly. And I was told, Valerie, if you want to talk about blood spilled and lives lost, then you need to be looking at things like democratization and ideological conflict. So that didn't deter me at all. In fact, I went back to my office and sat there and stewed for quite a while and decided to do a thought experiment. So I sent my research assistant out, and we collected the death tolls from all of the conflicts, interstate war, intrastate war, that is civil war, and genocides over the 21st century. So we started out with uh, World War I, and then World War II, and then Stalin, and Mao, and then we ended up having to go out and look at a whole bunch of other conflicts that you can't read from, from far away. And we ended up with a total death toll, right? All over 150 million. And then we looked at estimates of how many women are missing from the world population that by all rights should be there. And there have been a number of people who've taken a stab at that. So for example, we calculated how many missing women in seven countries, missing women in Asia. The latest estimates from an authoritative body, which is the UNFPA, says that at the turn of the century, that is not even the whole century, but at the turn of the century, there were 163 million missing women in the world who by all rights should be there. So I would argue that if we want to talk about blood spilt and lives lost, then we should be talking about women, okay? that there's something deeper going on here. In fact, it's stunning to me, although it's never made any headlines in any newspaper, it's stunning to me to realize that about six years ago or so, we could no longer say that women were half of humanity. They are no longer half of humanity. The world's overall sex ratio is now 101.4 men for every 100 women. Uh, and demographers tell us that the overall sex ratio by right should be about 98 men per 100 women. And so that's very troubling, all right? There's no natural reason behind this, but a very artificial, man-made reason why women are no longer half of humanity. So we were led to ask ourselves, you know, we know that the security of the state impacts the security of women. I mean, all you'd have to do is look at the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo to know that. But we'd like to ask the opposite question, which is, might the security of women impact the security of the states in which they live? So I'm going to use the theoretical framework from our book to suggest and instead of looking at the clash of civilizations, a la political scientist Samuel Huntington, that in fact we might gain greater insight by examining the clash of gender civilizations, civilizations in which women are subordinated uh, to a very extreme degree versus civilizations where they are not extremely subordinated. So what I'd like to do now is to kind of take you on a tour 
And so we're going to look at a whole panoply of research findings concerning the link with what's happening with the situation and security of women and how that translates into more macro-level phenomena, what's going on with their states. All right, so let's take food security in women. So for example, some people are not sure uh, that, uh, that women play a large role in agriculture, but they do. One of the areas in which they do is Sub-Saharan Africa. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, women perform about 80% of all agricultural labor. And if we look more worldwide, then 50% of agricultural labor is provided by women. But also worldwide, women only own about 2% of land. Although researchers have found that children's caloric intake is highly correlated with women's property rights. Uh, we also know that women are expected to process and cook food, find fuel and potable water, on top of all their other responsibilities for children and agricultural work. So in a sense, kind of a, a triple day, if you will, not just a double day. When land extension agents, agricultural agents, are provided by the state or by NGOs, they usually are men who speak to men, because it may in fact be out of the cultural framework for a man to speak to an unrelated woman. And therefore, even though they're providing this great amount of agricultural labor, they may not be beneficiaries of the types of aids that men are. Remuneration for cash crops is almost always given to men and not to women. However, we know that when cash is provided, 95% on average of a woman's cash income goes to her family. But in World Bank studies, we find that only about 40 to 60% of a man's cash income will go to his family. We also note that two-thirds of all malnourished children in the world are female children. And in many societies, uh, women and girls are expected to eat last, and they may not eat protein-rich foods such as meat. And in many agricultural societies, it is really up to the women to make sure that women and children do not starve. Men may find it deeply culturally shameful to help their wives, even with the agricultural labor that will sustain all of them. And so they don't assist them. And so when you take a look at kind of this syndrome Right? I think the question arises, might inequitable treatment of women make famine and malnutrition more likely within a state? And I think the answer is yes. Let's look at more macroeconomic indicators. In a series of just stunning World Bank research reports, they discovered that uh, in terms of the gender gap, obviously the bigger the gender gap, the more of a difference in the quality and opportunities of life between men and women. The larger the gender gap, the lower the GDP per capita of a nation. The larger the gender gap, the lower the rate of national economic growth. And uh, the World Bank has also found that lower investment in female education is tightly correlated with lower national income. And lastly, the World Bank has also discovered that when they put forward economic development projects, those with a gender component are much more successful in reaching their, their benchmarks than those that do not. 
So again, we're, we're, at, we're, we're led to ask a more macro level question here. Might inequitable treatment of women make poverty more likely within a state? Health in women, this is one that most people I think can really see intuitively. Again, looking at the World Bank's gender gap indicator, the smaller the gender gap, the lower the infant and child mortality rates within a country. The smaller the gender gap, the lower the level of child malnutrition. The smaller the gender gap, the lower the share of household income that's spent on cigarettes and alcohol. Conversely, the larger the gender gap, the higher the AIDS rate, the higher the infectious disease burden. And the larger the gender gap, the lower the life expectancy, not just for women, but also for men, which is really fascinating. Might inequitable treatment of women make disease and ill health more prevalent within a country? Yes, it does. Now this is my own work here, since I'm in security studies. So let's look at state conflict in women, okay? For example, one of the books that I wrote, um, Bare Branches, looking at the, the abnormal sex ratios of China and India, uh, what we found is that when you cull girls from the birth population through sex-selective abortion, in China, for example, you've now created a male population, a young adult male population that is 15% larger than the female population, that this in fact does fuel spiraling rates of violent crime, instability, and the potential for regional conflict. We also found in aggregate statistical testing that the higher the level of violence against women, the more likely a nation state was to be non-compliant with its international uh, treaty obligations. The higher the level of violence against women, the worse a nation state's relations with its neighboring or bordering states. The larger the gender gap, the more likely a state is not only to be involved in a conflict, but to be the state that uses force first in a conflict. And the higher the level of violence against women, the less peacefully overall a nation will behave in the international system. Might inequitable treatment of women then make conflict more likely within the state and between states? Governance in women. These results, I think, are really quite interesting as well. I have not performed this research, but this has been done primarily by researchers in Europe. And what they have found is the larger the gender gap, the higher the levels of both perceived and actual government corruption. The smaller the gender gap, the greater the level of trust in government and the greater the degree of transparency in government. And when representation of women in the councils of humanity is higher, more attention, right, more legislation, more policy making is devoted to social welfare, fighting corruption, and improving legal protections for citizens. One of my own graduate students, who's now at Yale University, has found that when women are represented in peace negotiations, participants are more satisfied with the outcome, and the peace agreement lasts longer than if women were not at the table. So might inequitable treatment of women make poor governance more likely, poor outcomes? I'd say yes. And demographics, that's pretty easy. That one's been studied to death. What we've discovered, of course, is that when marriage is highly inequitable between men and women, unsustainably high levels of population growth result. And that breeds a lot of problems, no pun intended, for the country. And likewise, we have found in countries with sub-replacement birth rates 
that when societies make it economically irrational for women to have children by actually punishing mothers who attempt to perform in the workplace, you get a fertility drop-off rather than fertility rise. So might inequitable treatment of women make demographic problems more likely? Absolutely. So in sum, we might ask ourselves, might one great key to the structural and physical violence that we see around us in this world be related to the inequitable treatment of women? That's kind of an astounding thought. Right? Our nation has long been in the business of attempting to export democracy and free market capitalism. And I'm certainly not going to ding those things. Right? But perhaps we would have a better chance of achieving sustainable development good governance, lower levels of poverty, disease, and conflict, if we also put a premium on living up to uh, international treaty obligations relating to the treatment of women. In fact, it leads me to wonder, is it possible there cannot be peace between nations until there is peace between men and women? And maybe we might consider that the roots of many things that we value, such as democracy and human rights, are rooted, right? These roots are to be found in the character of male-female relations. In fact, the eminent historian Mary Hartman has suggested that democracy arose in Northwestern Europe simply because marriage patterns there had changed dramatically. Uh, where you had uh, girls who were not being married off at puberty, but being married off in their early 20s, to young men who were in their mid-20s. And that this simple revolution of making marriage more companionate in Northwestern Europe created the bedrock, the foundation, for participatory democracy. Because those in society who were in such households were living participatory democracy to a greater extent uh, than had ever been experienced before. So that's interesting to think about. These kinds of um, statements, that, you know, historians' findings and so forth, I think, again, are echoed in, in what we're hearing from some of our top policymakers. So when she was Secretary of State, Hillary Rodham Clinton said, the subjugation of women is a direct threat to the security of the United States. And no one rolled their eyes. And the reason that people didn't roll their eyes is because they know full well all of the research that I've sampled for you this evening, right? The notion that when women are subordinated and oppressed, you simply get worse, more dysfunctional societies. Uh, I interviewed Donald Steinberg, who was Deputy Administrator of USAID, and he said, don't tell me there's no connection between the security of women and the security of states, right? Which countries right, are, in, are engaged in narco-trafficking? Right? Which countries have bloody civil wars? Which countries are involved in human smuggling? These are the countries where women are treated the worst. In our book, we actually talk about what we consider to be the three wounds that women have received in the house of those who should have been their friends. Right? And these wounds are the physical insecurity of women worldwide, inequitable family law favoring men, which is very prevalent, and lack of parity in the council of human decision making. Let's take each of those in turn. 
If we were to survey all the many types of violence against women, well, we would run out of time to talk about them all. But let's just survey a few. We've already spoken about sex-selective abortion, where having two X chromosomes is seen as being the most dire of congenital birth defects, and where culling curls from the population seems obvious and rational in that light. Also, accompanying that, of course, is stunning levels of childhood mortality rates for girls, so much higher. So much higher rates of malnutrition for girls than for boys. Um, Bob Seipel, one of the heads of World Vision, recalls flying into Ethiopia when they had their famine decades ago. And all around the tarmac, the women had gathered to hold up their children to show how skinny and bony they were and how much they needed World Vision's help. And it took Seipel a minute to discover that all the children being held up were, were boys. And in fact, the girls had already died. They'd been allowed to die because they were less valuable. And that all that had been saved up, uh, thus far were boys. Very, very high maternal mortality rates. And, and this is an easy fix. Okay? With very rudimentary medical techniques, right? maternal mortality can be fairly rare. But we, we have countries such as Sierra Leone, where the chance is one in eight that a woman will die incident to pregnancy and childbirth. Right? Clearly, this constitutes this kind of oversight and dismissal, um, lack of prioritizing for maternal mortality is, in a sense, a violence against women pervasive domestic and societal violence. I've been uh, on, on the plane over here, I was reading a book on women in Afghanistan, and the latest figures show that 90% plus women experience domestic, sexual, and psychological abuse um, during their lifetime, leading one researcher to ask, when is peacetime for women? Right? When we talk about, oh, we now have peace right, in this particular country, that doesn't mean it's a peacetime for women. It may be as much of a war zone for women as it was when soldiers were killing each other. Where is, where is peace if home is the most dangerous place for a woman to be? Rape and sexual assault in all its permutations I think we know that, that this type of rape has become a tool, a tactic of war, purposefully implemented in order to clear land as quickly as possible. Trafficking of women has, has exploded. Uh, it's now the number two illegal activity, most profitable illegal activity. The sheer volume of women and girls and some boys that are traded on the flesh markets and the amount of money that that brings in is just astounding. Honor crimes, where females are killed because in some way, shape, or form, they have sullied the reputation of their family. And that may be something as simple as walking too close to a boy on the way to school, being caught on the cell phone talking to a boy. These things can actually be the rationale for killing um, a woman. Another form of violence against women is lack of consent in marriage and childbearing. Uh, in many societies, such as Afghanistan, a girl does not have to be present for her own wedding. 
right? Only her, her nearest male relative, typically her father, and the groom need to show up. And if they agree on the marriage, then she's married. 40% of Afghan girls are married before age 16. And child marriage is endemic in other parts of the world as well. Yemen, for example, doesn't even have a minimum age of marriage for girls. And so girls may be married off as young as five, six, seven, eight. Lack of control over whether to become pregnant. I think we know that in this type of society where women are subordinated, that women do not have the right to determine whether they will get pregnant or not. Uh, and this, of course, is a serious health hazard for them. And then widows. The situation of widows worldwide is not something that makes the headlines either, and yet is a most dire and, and deep situation where most widows may be actually cast out of their, their living space. Their children may be taken from them. They may have to resort to begging or prostitution in order to, to live. The second great wound, I would argue, that women are experiencing worldwide is inequitable family law favoring men. And this is almost truly universal. If you go back far enough in Anglo-Saxon law or French law, you will find virtually the same thing. You go back far enough and you'll find nearly every society has these types of inequitable family law. Um, in many societies, women are considered as perpetual legal minors. And so, for example, they do not hold citizenship. Okay? They either hold their father's citizenship while they're single, or they hold their father's or their husband's uh, citizenship when they become married. And that means if they marry a foreigner, they may lose all citizenship rights in the country of their birth, and they may not pass down any sort of citizenship to their children either. We've already alluded to the fact that property rights for women are highly inequitable. Even when the law says that, uh, that women's property rights are equal to men's, we see a vast difference. So for example, researcher Laura Bossen has showed that in communist China, where absolutely inheritance is to be equal, 97% of all land is inherited by male relatives and not by female relatives of the deceased. Marriage law and custom. We've talked about consent. We've talked a little bit about age as well. There are other types of inequitable family law. Polygamy. And in many societies, the first wife or the existing wives get no say in how many wives a man may take. Dowry and bride price. Studying this has soured me on Johnny Lingo forever. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> in a dowry system where the girl's family pays the groom's family to take the girl off their hands, that's a pretty bad situation for, for girls because when she's born, they know that they're going to have to pay a ton of money to get rid of her. Uh, and so um, there's sayings like, raising a girl is like watering a plant in another man's garden. And so in her home, right, she's just a guest. In fact, that's how they refer to her as a guest in the home, until she goes to a rightful household. But in her rightful household, her husband's household, she's not treated as a member of the family either. So dowry sets up a really bad situation. But you know what? Bride price does too. In bride price, right, where the groom's family 
pays the father of the bride a considerable amount of money um, for his daughter. In many societies, this devolves into, I bought you, I own you. You will do as I say, including in sexual matters, you will work for me. Right? So, for example, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where polygamy is, is quite rampant, we see that the bride price is used by wealthy men to actually increase the number of farm hands that they have. Because the women, as we've seen, do the vast majority of agricultural labor in Sub-Saharan Africa. So buying up all these women is buying up your team of farm hands to enrich yourself. Patrilocality is really, really sad. And so these days, when I, whenever I read Genesis and I talk about how, um, therefore, man shall leave his parents and cleave unto his wife, I think to myself, you know, there's a divine injunction against patrilocality there. Uh, and what we mean by patrilocality, of course, is that the bride goes to live with her husband's family. Uh, and as we've alluded to, this makes her, in a sense, homeless. The home that she's born in is not her home. The home that she's taken to is not her home. Right? Where are the people who care about her as if she was a vital member of the family? Well, that's not going to happen until she has her own sons and they grow to manhood. Those sons are her family. But that means that when those sons marry, that daughter-in-law is going to be the most threatening person on the scene. And so the legendary antipathy between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law in these types of societies where family law favors men uh, is, is just stunning uh, in what older women have been willing to do to younger women uh, because of the resentment that I think is created through the practice of patrilocal marriage. Decision-making, of course, is an, is an issue in many countries. Um, for example, uh, until fairly recently in Saudi Arabia, a woman could not actually leave the country without her husband's written permission. So if she tried to get on a plane, they would actually call him and ask for permission for her to get on the plane. Likewise, a woman may need written permission to work or to go to university. In some cultures, she cannot even leave the house unless she is accompanied by a male guardian. So mobility issues, issues of permission for virtually every important life event uh, can rest with men. Domestic violence may be so normalized that there isn't even any punishment in the, the, uh, the legal code for domestic violence. In fact, I was just scaling that particular issue in our database, and I can tell you, that there's 40 plus countries in which domestic violence is not even in the criminal code at all. Divorce. In some societies, a husband can say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that's it. She's divorced. There need not be any court. He has divorced her. Whereas she has to prove seven years abandonment or that uh, he's been imprisoned for a major crime, 
or that he's mentally ill. In other words, it's virtually impossible for women to get a divorce, whereas divorce is so easy for men. And custody of minor children. In many societies, custody of children devolves to the father, right? Because he, in a sense, paid for these children to be produced by the wife for whom he gave a bride price. And so it's not uncommon to see that boys are turned over at weaning and girls may be turned over at puberty to their fathers. Sex, I think you may know that more than a third of countries in the world, 90 countries in fact, um, still have no laws against marital rape. In fact, it's seen as an oxymoron. Um, women may have no right at all to say no to sex whatsoever. And of course, double standards of marital fidelity, where men may be encouraged to be unfaithful to their wives, but a woman may be killed for any hint that she has uh, any sort of even innocuous relationship with another man. In essence, in many of these societies, women are men's honor. So they're not so much an individual human being as they are the man's honor. And if that honor is sullied, then the woman herself is, is to blame. One of my favorite quotes is from Ziba Mir Husseini. And she says, I think the issue of gender relations within the family, which is what personal laws are all about, actually relates to the core of power in society at the broader level. Since the family is the basic unit of society, only if there is justice and democracy within the family can you possibly have justice and democracy in the wider society. In other words, the key to democratizing the whole society is to democratize its basic unit, the family. And for this, legal reform is crucial. And so I think this is very important. This coincides with what Mary Hartman was saying. It is only when marriages change their character that macro-level state characteristics began to change as well. There is a problem in that if you look at the laws, many countries have laws on the books that look equitable, but there's often some sort of clause or reservation that says that customary law or religious law trumps um, whatever the legal code of the country is. So that's another drop-off point. The last wound, I think, here is lack of parity in the councils of human decision-making. Um, because women are not at the table when important decisions are made, women's voices go unheard and women's labor goes unvalued. So for example, unpaid caring labor performed by anyone, but of course women especially perform unpaid caring labor, is not even considered. Uh, in any national accounts, such as gross domestic product. It's considered to be not work at all. Across the globe, less than one in five legislators at the national level are women, and a sizable number of them in, in various countries are, are puppets who are there because there's a quota. So for example, in Afghanistan, there's a quota, 25% women in the national legislature. Uh, but studies have shown that most of these women are simply um, puppets who have been fronted by important men and warlords to, be, to take those seats against the 25% quota. Uh, let's see, we talked about this in the workplace. The workplace, especially in societies like ours, 
is designed in the image of men, the unencumbered worker who does not need to perform unpaid caring labor. And this kind of system that relies on these unencumbered workers systematically makes mothers poorer than any other subcategory of the population. The, Sylvia Ann Hewlett has shown that the greatest risk factor to be poor in old age is to ever have been a mother. And we now have quite a number of new studies by folks in um, business schools uh, who do organizational behavior and who do social psychology that show that men who are at the table without women make riskier and less pro-social decisions without women. I think you may remember the famous quote by Christine Lagarde, who's now head of the IMF, who said, if it had been layman sisters instead of layman brothers, would the company have met the same fate as it did during the Great Recession? So could we actually consider that um, there's a rationale, as Hillary Clinton has uh, asserted, that American foreign policy should have as one of its foci an examination of what's going on with women and attempt to ameliorate some of the worst aspects of that treatment. I think the first steps of what we might call an R2PW, which is a play off of uh, a term called R2P, which means responsibility to protect, and R2PW is responsibility to protect women. I think there's things that we could do to start taking the situation of women more seriously in foreign policy circles. Clearly, we need gender disaggregated statistics. Oftentimes, they are never collected by national statistical bureaus. Right now, I'm involved in something called the Data 2X Initiative, which is an, a, a joint initiative by the US State Department and the United Nations to try to, to fund innovative projects to collect these gender disaggregated statistics. Another thing that we're really missing is statistics on violence against women. And part of this, of course, is the reporting issue, right? That women do not report crimes because they are so normalized within the society. In fact, um, in certain areas of Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, if, if a man is con convicted of rape and is kept in jail, his victim and her family must provide food for the rapist to keep him in jail, or they will let him go free. It's absolutely astounding. In that sort of situation, why would you report the rape, right? He's going to be a burden on you forever. Another thing I'd like to see is the inclusion of women's unpaid labor in national and international systems of accounts. When UNIFEM tried doing that, back at the turn of the century, oh my gosh, we can say that now. Back at the turn of the century, the United Nations attempted to figure out what would be added to sort of the, the global GDP if you counted women's unpaid caring labor. They said that it would add 40% to the global GDP. Another thing is that too often economic policy making is made with no women at the table. And what I'd like to see is just as we have environmental impact statements, so if we build the Keystone Pipeline, what's the environmental impact? Shouldn't somebody be asking, right, if we raise the minimum wage, what's going to happen with women, right? If we decide to cut subsidies in Jordan for fuel, what will happen to women? Where are people doing the women impact statements? I'd like to see that happen. 
And then I think another thing is that um, virtually every country in the world, 186 countries, have signed on to CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. In fact, you're not going to believe this, but CEDAW has more signatories than any other human rights treaty, the most. And yet, women are still living the way they're living. And I think part of this is that women don't even know their nation has acceded to CEDAW and don't know what their rights are under CEDAW. Did you know that in countries um, that have acceded to CEDAW and signed under what's called the optional protocol, any woman in that society can actually bring to the UN a complaint against their nation for inequitable treatment, which was really quite astounding. So I take that first step. I think a second step is, is a discursive step. What I mean by that is a difference in how we talk about things. So I think we all know that how we talk about things shapes how we think about things. So the United Kingdom is trying to go towards what's called the Swedish model of abolition of prostitution. Right? And this is where instead of arresting the prostitute, right, you, uh, you arrest your client. Okay? You abolish it in that way. And so there's been a new ad campaign in the UK. Walk in a John. Actually, in the UK, it's called a punter. Walk in a John, walk out a rapist. Right? Sort of changing the way people are thinking about what it means to go visit a prostitute. Um, Iceland. President of Iceland announced, as she banned all sorts of exotic lap dancing in Iceland, that women are not for sale in this country. Okay? President of Iceland saying it. Women are not for sale in this country, and Icelandish men are just going to have to get used to it. In Canada, there's a fascinating discursive term, uh, turn of events where um, legal scholars have been claiming that Canada's dismissive attitude towards domestic violence contravenes the Convention Against Torture, which Canada signed, in which Canada is obligated to stamp out any sub-state actor torture of its citizens. Fascinating. In Sierra Leone, the courts have been used uh, also. Um, so for the first time in Sierra Leone, which has marriages as young as eight and nine, a judge in um, Sierra Leone has pronounced forced marriages as a crime against humanity. And when he used that term, it then triggers, if you will, Sierra Leonean accession to the International Criminal Court so that those who do these crimes against humanity can be claimed against at The Hague. It's a fascinating move. Hillary Clinton herself has said that she will not call any nation a democracy that tramples on the rights of its women because it doesn't matter that they vote if they don't have their rights as women in the society. So I can think of a whole bunch of different nations that we now call democracies that we could no longer call democracies if we follow Clinton's lead. Okay. The idea that the word representatives has to include women. 
when you say representatives of Syrian opposition and governmental forces met in Montreux, the term representative means that you have to represent the women there as well. And that if an all-male team goes, they cannot be called representatives because they are not representative. Okay? It's an interesting discursive move. And then, lastly, the term gendercide. The notion that we have lots of interesting international conventions against genocide, where nations are actually obligated to do something if genocide is occurring. That's one of the reasons why President Bill Clinton told his staff not to use the G word with reference to Rwanda, because he didn't want to do anything. Because if he had used the G word, then they would have been obligated under their treaty commitments to do something. Well, guess what? Isn't gendercide genocide? Right? If you systematically cull girls from a population, isn't that toleration of gendercide? And isn't that like genocide? You don't have to kill men for it to be bad, as bad as killing men. It's an interesting thing. Harvest the low-hanging fruit. When your society finds this certain bad customs are dying out, go ahead and outlaw it. This happened in Turkey. In Turkey, under the law, uh, in order to enter college, you had to undergo virginity testing, where a woman would have to go to a gynecologist who would have to certify that her hymen was intact before she could attend school. Well, that's kind of petered out. And the Turkish government, seeing that it was petering out, outlawed it and put punishments with it. So we should be looking to see what sort of low-hanging fruit that we could pick. Another thing that we've seen is uh, there are certain crimes, for example, honor killings, that in many societies are recognized as murder, right? But because it's an honor killing, you only pay a fine. Or you only spend two months in prison, literally, I'm telling you, only two months in prison in certain countries. Okay? What regimes have done is over time, every couple of years, ratchet up the punishment a little more, right? Three years, ratchet up a little more. Four years, ratchet up, right? Until it is, in fact, a deterrence to the crime itself. Another thing that could be done is to outlaw things that haven't happened yet. My favorite example, of course, is that um, in virtually all of Europe, as well as Canada and the United States, sex-selective abortion is not illegal. Which is interesting when you come to think about it. Of course, I think the politics of abortion in this country are so insane. Maybe it would never be passed. But the notion that you have places like Sweden where sex-selective abortion is not illegal, that gives one pause. That may be something that could be examined. Could we have a real commitment of resources? I think we could. And you can see some of the ideas that we have up here. Altering incentive structures, making caregiving economically rational, really, really trying on maternal mortality. A second step, I think, could be real legal reform. Across the Islamic world, there's a movement called the No Reservations Movement, 
what no reservations mean is that when, say, a state like Saudi Arabia signed on to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, otherwise known as CEDAW, it has a clause that says, um, if something would violate Sharia law, then we're not bound by it. And so the No Reservations Movement is a movement across the Middle East and North Africa to get their countries to remove those reservations. We don't know if it's going to work, but that would be a really first step. Another step is to have judges assert that having ratified CEDAW then allows CEDAW to trump customary and religious law that usually always subordinates women. Another example is the rejection of enclaves of inequitable family law. There's a movement in a number of societies for certain religious groups to be allowed to practice their own type of family law. Now you might think, oh, Islamic, right? Well, yeah, Islamic, but uh, also other things, like the Bountiful Group in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, an apostate Mormon group that practices polygamy. Uh, and uh, they sued, of course, uh, to, um, to overthrow uh, the ban against polygamy in Canada, stating that it violated their First Amendment rights. Just a tangent on that one. One of the proudest moments was that my own research was used in the judge's decision to find that the ban against polygamy was constitutional and would stay intact, which I thought was highly ironic because you have a Mormon from BYU whose research was used to be part of the legal judgment upholding the ban against polygamy in Canada. But I'm very, very um, proud of that moment. Um, I'm reminded of Charles Napier. You probably don't know who Charles Napier is, so I'll tell you. He was a British officer in um, British India, uh, colonial India. Uh, and, uh, of course, he was shocked, as many British were, at some of the customs regarding women. And one of those customs, of course, was sati, where we've talked about the problem with widows. What do you do with a widow once her husband's dead? Yeah, you burn them, right? One of the things you do is her life has no more meaning, right? She can't have any more children from him. He's dead. So what do you do with her? Well, you know, put her on a fire burner. And this is what he said which I thought was really fascinating. He said, be it so. This burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pile. But my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. My carpenters shall therefore erect gibbets to one side of the funeral pile, on which to hang everyone concerned when the widow is consumed. Let us all act according to our national customs. Charles Napier, my man, yeah. I think we also need, obviously, we clearly need right, a global movement to begin to reform family law. And over the last five years, a very strong push has been made in terms of child marriage. I think that's the first domino that could fall. And if that domino falls, I think a number of other things will fall as well. Could there be a father? Sure. Maybe so. Sometimes I have a dream. I have a dream that uh, the world community treats nations that ill-treat their women in a severe fashion on a par with flouting 
the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, with sanctions and the whole gamut. I know my dream is probably not to be realized in my lifetime, and maybe may never be realized, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Could we ever think of the kinds of wounds that we've been talking about as being severe violations of the international peace? Maybe so. Are we really that helpless in the face of genocide just because it is perpetrated not against an ethnic minority but against women? Right? I think maybe we could. I think there's a way, in fact, to help Afghan women. I've written policy pieces for magazines like Foreign Policy talking about how we as Americans could help ensure a softer landing for Afghan women after the pullout in 2014. And these are some of the the policies that I've advocated. I'll end by saying that I think the Baha'i have a, a very poignant way of looking at this. The world of humanity is possessed of two wings, the male and the female. As long as these two wings are not equivalent in strength, the bird will not fly. Until womankind reaches the same degree as man, until she enjoys the same arena of activity, extraordinary attainment for humanity will not be realized. Humanity cannot wing its way to new heights of real attainment. When the two wings become equivalent in strength, enjoying the same prerogatives, the flight of man will be exceedingly lofty and extraordinary. A bird with one broken wing will never soar. We know that our species has experienced it for millennia and paid for that sure knowledge with rivers of blood and mountains of needless suffering. The nations of the world must try a different path, a path we have every reason to believe will lead to greater well-being, prosperity, security, and peace for the entire inter-nation system, the path of equality between men and women. And so just as a last little aside, if you're interested in our research, which underpins this book, you might be interested in looking at the Women's Stats Project database, which is the largest database on the situation of women available anywhere in the world. We have more variables than the World Bank and the UN and the World Economic Forum put together. In fact, they use our data. And uh, I want you to know that that project, which has resulted in that immense database, started at Brigham Young University. And that's also something I'm all right, thank you very much, and I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. I taught a course on the religion clauses this spring, and I had a student who's written a paper for me advocating, based on Warren Fisher, Texas et al., the legalization of polygamy. And I haven't quite known what to make of it. And it sounds to me like you would think that's not a good, a good idea. You're right, I don't. I don't. You know, one could think of a theoretical world where among, you know, consenting adults who all knew who they, what they were yeah. getting into with women's rights strongly assured by the state that maybe it all, could all work out. But I will tell you that whatever polygamous enclaves we look at, either in this country or in countries where polygamy is legal, we see an astounding array of bad consequences, not just for women, but for children. Shockingly higher rates of malnutrition. 
shockingly earlier age at marriage for girls with attendant higher mortality. In fact, if you want a whole list, I'd be happy to, uh, if you emailed me, I'd be happy to give you that. Not only that, I'll give you the link to the, the judge's reasoning in the case of British Columbia. I, I don't, I have not read that. I would love to, though. That would be it's very long. They all are, but that's, that's probably good. I'd love to see it. So we can trade. Briefs is not a word that lawyers understand real well. Mm -hmm. no, I think that's right. I think what's funny is that, I'll just say this as a prediction, if the United States ever legalized polygamy, the, the entity that you would have to drag kicking and screaming to that point would be the LDS Church. Yes. Do you, do you think there's any correlation to the findings of current polygamy compared to pre-1890 Mormon polygamy? Actually, one of my students has done an in-depth study of that, which is on our, our, we have an online journal of faithful LDS scholarship called Square Two, and in this month's uh, issue, you'll find a, a long essay by Alexander Lewis Adams that shows that there were some of the problems there, but they were kind of ameliorated. For example, polygamous husbands in Utah, aside from very wealthy men, were usually hard-pressed to meet the nutritional needs of their family. And so, therefore, the wives had to go to work if the children were to, to, to remain healthy. And so what's fascinating is, is you actually see a push for women to work among polygamous families below the top families in Utah during this time period. But why are they working? They're working because with polygamy comes higher rates of child, child malnutrition. But I encourage you to go read that article. It's really a stunning article. Yeah. Um, uh, my name is Carrie Miles, and I'm the director of a ministry that works in less developed countries precisely around these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to make comments about looking at legal change as a solution to these problems. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Absolutely. So in Kenya, for instance, there's laws against dispossessing a widow after her husband dies, but they're patrilocal, and she's living there in the middle of his clan. And it, it, she's probably terrified uh, to try to get those laws enforced. You have to be very strong. Mm -hmm. um, in India, dowry is now illegal. But well, it's been illegal for, for decades, yeah. on decades. But it, there's still a rising number of dowry deaths every year. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a pincer movement. It's got to be top down, it's got to be bottom up. So you have to change the exactly hearts. Right. That's right. There has to be a ministry among the people. But you also need to change, you know, whatever. For example, Kenya, just last month, reverted. Used to be polygamous unions, you had to have you know, the first wife's permission, not anymore. So we think that everything is getting better and better as we as we as the human species go through time. Not on this, not on this. You find stunning 180 degree reversals in law right here and now, 2014, Kenya. Alright? The Stan countries, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and so forth. Okay, they were all under the Soviet Union for so many years, right? Incredible gains for women all being reversed now, post-communism. Polygamy is, is going to be re-legalized re in Kyrgyzstan, for example. So all of these things are always in question. And I, I think that's not a coincidence. 
uh, you know, I really do deeply feel that the first war, if you will, right, is the war that can occur between men and women, which flavors everything else in the society. And so these battles are constantly being, you know, refought. And complete reversion to an earlier, worst time period for women is entirely foreseeable. Afghanistan, oh my God. We are so worried about Afghanistan. Whoever would like to speak first, you're sitting next to each other. Um, I was impressed that you suggest kind of an incremental approach to solving some of these problems. I'm wondering if you have any examples in nations where there's such strict religious strictures against women's rights, such as a lot of the Muslim world. Uh, how do you deal with it there? I know I work with a lot of international polling data, and I know, like, I remember being struck by seeing, I think, Pew data from Pakistan, where you've got college-educated Pakistanis, and you yeah. still have a majority believing that honor killings are okay. Uh, how does one address or even get a foothold in a society like that? Well, first thing I'll do, I didn't bring any books, but we have an entire chapter on top-down strategies, and then an entire chapter on bottom-up strategies. So we, did, we weren't going to write a book like this unless we could tell you some things that could happen, and it's important to do. One of the things that I'll mention is kind of a, something I'm about to write a piece on, which is why women in these societies should love autocrats which sounds kind of strange because, you know, here I am an American arguing for the benefits of autocracy. But for women, I'm creating what I call the, the Hudson's Rule of 20-year-old autocrats. That is, what we find is in some of these dynastic and also autocratic regimes, when you get about 20 years into their reign, something starts happening and you can see all sorts of legal reform for women. Here's an example, Hosni Mubarak, okay? Amazing change for women after he had cemented his power a couple of decades. So banning a female genital cutting, the allowing of women to get a divorce by returning their dower, right? I think I told you how difficult it was for a woman to get a divorce. They proposed something that's called a cool of divorce for women where if she agrees to give back um, the amount that was paid, she can walk, right? This is kind of interesting, and I'd like to study it more. Um, we, uh, Saudi Arabia, we see the very same thing. King Abdullah, right? He is going to allow women, women to vote in municipal elections starting next year. He has also decided girls can play sports. Now, he still hasn't said they can drive, but do you see how you've got these aging autocrats, right, who are surrounded by strong, educated women who are slowly making these changes as they feel they can, right? But they feel they're in a much better place to make it, right, than the democratically elected guy in the state next door who's constantly going to have to worry about whether guys are going to assassinate him, right? So that's an interesting thing to think about. But I refer you to the book. There's two whole chapters that I think you'll like very much. Yes, sir. Going off of what the original title of your most recent book was going to be, Sex and War, is, I, I'm not sure what, your, what the actual thesis of the book is, but is your argument that these gender inequality or gender inequities 
are causal, or is this simply a correlation? This is co-constitutiveness, okay? Which is the two things create each other, right? That is that the lack of peace between men and women breeds dysfunctionality and even violent templates of conflict resolution within the society. Societies that descend in war then create an even worse type of subordination for women. Okay? So co-constitutive. So how would you demonstrate that thesis with, say, World War I or World War II? Now you demonstrate it over a whole sweep of cases. You have to do a comparative case study analysis. Not only that, but you have to go back pretty far in human history as well. Okay? So that's what, what you'll find. Right? But if you're suggesting that what happens between men and women in each household of the society doesn't make any difference to the society, that's demonstrably wrong, right? We can find that when women do have property rights, their children are less malnourished. We can find that when women are, are better treated, nations honor their treaty obligations. And so to suggest that it only goes one way, Right? that everything is affecting women, but what's happening between men and women does not affect anything in the society, I think is prima facie impossible to believe. Well, there are other causes of conflict. I mean, oh, there are many other causes of so conflict. I listed some. Whatever was wrong with Germany in 1914 or 1939 didn't have that much to do with gender impact. Actually, there have been whole books written on the link to gender in World War I and World War II. Right? The German society, especially under the Nazis, was highly misogynist. Right? And uh, condemned women to the kitchen, childbearing, took away their rights. Women university professors were stripped of their positions. It was very much like what happened when the Iranian theocracy took power. So there were lots of fallouts for German women, and they were in a most negative direction. The deep misogyny of the Nazis deeply infected what they did. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Was that because they were women or because they were Jewish? No, because they were women. These were not just Jewish women. These were women who were stripped of everything that they had accomplished during this time period. Almost all the Jews the Germans killed were not from Germany. They were from Poland, Russia. Lithuania, you name it, everywhere. There's only about 1% of the population of Germany at the beginning of World War II was Jewish. I think they heard the war drums. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to point out what you're saying there. If the women are stripped of their power and their focus is made minuscule, then they can't influence this society to be a better society. So as they lose their power, the Nazis gain more power, and the women can't do anything about it. So right. there's a cause and effect, I think. You, that's a beautiful thing that you brought up. I, you may be interested to know that the U.S. Institute for Peace has actually sort of picked up on your idea. They have created programs called de-radicalization strategies. And what they have discovered is that the first person who realizes that a young man is turning to radical fundamentalism is his mother, right? And so what they do is they create training programs for the mothers, how to identify and how to neutralize the radicalization of her son, which I think is fascinating. 
So the key to de-radicalization is just what you said. It's the women in their lives who have any influence over them. And in a highly patriarchal society like Afghanistan, the only woman who's going to have any influence over a young man is his mother. It won't be anybody else. But his mother may have that influence. So the key, according to USIP, to de-radicalization is the women. Yeah? I was reading something just today in the newspaper about a country in the Middle East, and I forget which one, where a Christian woman was sentenced to death because she would not you know, renounce her Christianity. And it got me to thinking that as you described the nations that are particularly bad toward women, that it, there seems to be almost a correlation between nations that truly do not have religious freedom either. Mm -hmm. And by religious freedom, I mean actually not the freedom to practice or preach that mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. And so it seems, seems to me that almost there's a correlation. I, I agree there is. But let me tell you something about that case which is interesting. <clears throat> Okay, which is that her father's Muslim, her mother's Christian. So even though her father left when she was six and her mother raised her as a Christian, it doesn't matter because in that society, whose religion is stamped on the children? The father, inequitable family law. Let me go further. Being raised a Christian, she married a Christian. But because her father was Muslim, she is accused of apostasy because a Muslim woman who marries a Christian is a traitor to the faith. If a Muslim man married a Christian woman, perfectly fine. He's not an apostate. He has made a convert. Okay? So this is all gendered, right? Even the religious part is deeply, deeply gendered. It's fascinating. Muhammad had a concubine who was a Coptic Christian. Yeah. This little boy named Ibrahim who died young and he it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. A Muslim man marries someone out of his faith, he's made a convert, because all of her kids will be considered Muslim. He has, in effect, captured her womb from the other religious group. He has won a battle. But if she gives her procreative power to the other religious group, she's a sellout and a traitor and an apostate. The Jewish is kind of the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where religious lineage is traced through the mother. And some have suggested it has to do with how, how many pogroms there were, raping of women, and so forth, at some point the community had to say, these children of rape are ours. And so then they had to change how they viewed religious lineage. Yeah, we're talking primarily about other countries. In this country, you obviously have been very successful as a woman. Your voice is being heard and respected. And you've got a large family that you've raised. Have you had any personal encounters <laughs> With, you don't want to uh, with, your, with your femininity as you've been getting to where you are. Yeah, lots, tons. Uh, you know, I won't go into it, but I'll simply say that at various points at BYU, they've had to do a global salary survey and adjust the women's salary upward. Because in merit reviews, of course, women, women can dance backwards and do all sorts of things, and that's just normal for women. But when a man does it, that's meritorious. So over time, the salaries at BYU get out of sync, and then the administration has to go in and resync them. So it's that's just one example of how you know it's not as blatant anymore. Although sometimes it is blatant, but it's not quite. Now it's kind of subtle. 
right? Where what you say is not as important as what the man says next to you, right? And and where, oh, for example, Texas. Sometimes feel that way too, even about other men. That they, oh, I'm what sure they, they do. What they say isn't as important as what they're saying. I'm sure uh, they do. How can you be sure that's a gender? Uh, well, I think they, they've done studies. I'll just give you an example. Um, we recently have decided to become departments, and we're going to have our very first department chair. So the big committee is the um, search committee to find candidates to bring in for the department chair. A third of the faculty are women. Not one woman was appointed to the search committee. Not until I marched down and, and stamped my feet and said, this is absolutely unacceptable. And then they put one on the committee, all right, of six people. So one out of six, even though one out of three is our true numbers in the department. So yeah, and it's true. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you the secret. In a system where men are here and women are here, will also be a system in which some men are here, and some men are here, and women are here. All right? A system that is based on subordination of women is a system that easily subordinates non-elite men. And we see that over and over and over again. Let me tell you a story about Iran. When um, the theocracy took over in Iran, one of the very first things they did was require all women wear the veil, which in Iran is called the Rusari. Nobody made an outcry. Thirty years later, the Green Revolution, a few years ago, when the Iranians went out and tried to take down their regime uh, in 2009, the men, the dissident men, began to wear the veil. And they were asked, why are you wearing this veil? I'm sorry, I get choked up whenever I relate this. And I don't relate it very often, so I'm being choked up. And they said, if we had protested when the Rusari was first forced upon our sisters who did not want to wear it, we would not be here today. I thought, my God, he gets it. That's absolutely right. Absolutely gets it. That kind of system right, is not just going to maltreat women. It's going to maltreat all but the highest, wealthiest, most powerful men. Men will suffer under it too. Not as much as women maybe, but they're going to suffer tremendously. And that's why those men put the veil on. And I thought that was amazing. Yeah? How does your larger thesis play out with, say, Japan? where I think you would recognize gender inequity, whether it's women yeah. being allowed to work longer after they're married, what have you. Mm -hmm. And yet, the statistics as far as violence and what have you seem to go in, in the Western model. Well, not superior I think you have to look at the whole history of Japanese culture, which has been very violent until a nuclear weapon or two were exploded on their land and a peace constitution enforced upon them. But the nation that spends the most on arms and armaments is the U.S. The nation that spends the second most on arms and armament is Japan. And we are, all, are already seeing a resurgence of nationalist feeling in Japan. Another thing I think that the Japanese society has wrought from all of this is a birth rate that's tanking, okay? Incredible fall off in um, Japanese population. 
and I attribute that as well to gender inequity. So I think they've, they are reaping what they sowed, and they're still reaping what they've sowed. In terms of crime, it depends on what crime you look at, right? If we talk about human trafficking, for example, Japan is one of the worst nations in the world for human trafficking. It is a really deeply misogynist society, and I think they're going to reap the consequences of that, and they already are. Well, I, I've really been impressed by what Valerie's presented. I, I kind of knew these things in the back of my mind, but I didn't know them in that kind of detail, and it was extremely educational to me. So thanks again, Valerie, for coming. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.